0: Hello! Welcome to another episode of the Jericho Comedy Podcast. I'm your host, Connor McReynolds, and this week I'm speaking to an act who I love seeing a Jericho comedy. She's appeared on QI and is often heard on BBC Radio 4. She's a stand up comedian who previously spent her working life as a TV executive working at Comedy Central and MTV amongst many other cool places. My guest this week is the brilliant Callie Beaton. I'll be chatting to Callie all about comedy and lockdown and about her brilliantly honest and candid material which always guarantees audiences at Jericho such a great night. We'll also be playing you a little message from our wonderful charity partner, Oxfordshire Mind. But right now here is the superb Callie Beaton. Kelly Beaton. Thank you so much for joining me on the Jericho Comedy Podcast.
1: My pleasure. What else is a comedian to do during a pandemic? Very happy to be here. I mean, I'd be here even if it wasn't a pandemic, obviously. Of course. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. I mean, obviously, I want to start by asking how your lockdown's been, but yours has been, it sounds like it's been quite a full on experience because you had COVID, didn't you?
1: I did have COVID. Yes, I got ill on the second day of lockdown. So I was an early adopter, uh, as I'd like to always be in my life. And uh, yeah, I got quite (laughs) ill with it, actually, having been very smug. Um, I think I sent you last time. I saw you at a gig. I was really, I really underestimated this whole virus, as I'm sure many of us did. Yeah. And I particularly had a certain swagger. about my, I was like, <laughs> "Well, I'm a runner and I'm never ill." And oh, you guys are so pathetic and what masks schmasks. And then, um, obviously, then I, I did get ill, uh, and um, I was I was all right for the first bout. So I had sort of the usual, the usual ten days with a sort of fever and feeling oh, a bit odd, but God. but nothing too bad. And then it came back as um, pneumonia. I had a second I had my own second covid stage which is apparently the that's the pattern of it so yeah it was quite it was quite bad I was ill for the best part of two months so um yes that there I was a smug runner laid up in bed not even able to walk down the stairs unassisted so it was a bit grim and a bit odd because it meant while everybody else was kind of getting used to whatever lockdown was I I remember the first time I went out it was almost two months after boris announced it and i was really like oh i don't know what to do like i i hadn't been part of the sort of queuing and the this thing and the that thing so it just felt i literally felt like i'd been plonked on another planet um so so it was not an auspicious start to what was a hard time for everybody god that
0: is absolutely bonkers like was it a very was it just like a slow recovery or was it like an intense kind of period of being unwell or, or a bit of both
1: it was both. I suppose I had about. I mean, this is really the most unfunny uh, thing conversation i will ever have had on this. I'm, I'm I can so only glad apologize. I brought us
0: down this path. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: And I've really gone with it. Uh, so um, yeah, I'd say I had about a month of being pretty ill. And the weird thing is, with it, for anyone, any of any of your lovely listeners who might be about to get it, or would like to know what it's like. <laughs> um, although they they may you know get it completely differently, but for people who get it seriously. Um, And they don't seem to know why some people do and some don't, although age does seem to have something to do with it. But they um, you sort of feel like you're getting better and then you just drop off a cliff again, illness wise. So it's so weird. You have a couple of days where you're like, oh, I'm recovered and then you get really kind of ill again. So it just was that. The, the, um, the doctor that was, because I, I obviously was under medical supervision for quite a lot of it. And yeah. one of the doctors said to me that um, that it was like a sort of saw's tooth pattern. And you sort of get a little climb up feeling better. And then you literally drop back down again. But he said, cumulatively, you are getting better. Um, it just doesn't feel like it because you get these massive sort of setbacks. So, yeah, it was just like weeks and weeks of Thinking, oh, "Oh, I'm all right now. And then another setback. So it sort of felt like um, I don't know how it is for, well, I have an idea how it is for other comics and and performers, but. because everybody, I think everybody sort of panics at the start and thought, oh, the venues are shut and yeah. can't get my voice out. So ev- everybody was thinking, oh, I'll do TikTok and I'll do little vignettes on t- Twitter and I'll boost my kind of Insta presence. And everyone was sort of thinking, and I'll do a podcast and I'll do... Everyone thought of things to do, not all of which were good ideas, some of them were great. <laughs> but while that was happening, I, I just sort of kept thinking, I must do something to get myself out there in lockdown. But my brain and body just weren't playing ball. So by the time I finally sort of came to... I felt a bit like the train had left the station. I was like, oh, I don't really know what a comedian's oh, meant to do God. in lockdown. So I felt that I'd been left behind a bit. Um, although I, from what I gather, most of us are feeling a bit like that. So it probably wasn't specific to being ill.
0: Yeah, although it certainly obviously doesn't help. Um, but I mean, you, you have launched yourself back into the, the sort of new world of comedy. Like you came along to Jericho Comedy to one of our drive-in shows.
1: I loved that show so much. That was, um, yeah, I got I got quite emotional uh, before and afterwards because that was by then I'd done lots of zoom gigs and i hadn't done any anything even vaguely in person um i hadn't done an outdoor gig with real people at all so when i got to your lovely gig and i'm not just saying this because it's your podcast but when i got (laughs) to the gig and i didn't really know what to expect you know brewery car park could mean a lot of different things um and i think and it was and it was just such a beautiful setting and as, as you'll remember it was lovely lovely summer's evening yeah and even being you know i live in north london and even being outside london for a reason you know being in Oxford of felt course, quite yeah. exciting, <laughs> and um, and then as you remember, it was just the most lovely evening. Like the weather was lovely, and because it was just that lovely number of cars and lots of people sort of roofs down or hanging out their windows yeah, or sitting yeah. on the roofs of vans, it felt like a real live comedy gig. And I just, that was the first one I'd done that felt like that in about, I don't know, six months. So yeah, so yeah it was it was definitely quite an emotional evening, actually. Um, and um, hopefully emotional for those watching for the right reasons. Oh, I but, think um, so. it was lovely. <laughs> it was, it was lovely. so lovely
0: yeah. for us. Because uh, obviously like your experience was the same as, as that for so many comedians who hadn't been out and done a gig in months and months. So we were like, we felt really lucky. Like we got to kind of share that experience with so many acts of coming back. Um, like Alex Keeley did one of our, our drive-in shows. And I don't think I've ever seen a performer so fizzy after they came off stage. Like he just missed it so much. And it was so, so lovely to see, not just with Alex, like with you, so many acts, how much it meant to them. And it certainly helped that, as you said, they were such a lovely gig. So we always get great audiences and that kind of thing.
1: It's also lovely to see. So people that you hadn't seen for a while. So I haven't seen you for a while. Obviously, yeah. I know Alex and Harry quite well, but I hadn't seen them for a while. Chelsea was on the bill. And just watching people who, I mean, every, everyone you know everyone on the bill um a great great comic so there's never been any doubt about that but just also watching how people sort of progress so you know watching how kind of Alex MC'd that night watching how Chelsea blew the lack of roof off um, (laughs) which is so lovely to see I was like god I always it's it's so nice to see sort of comics that you've seen um sort of who started a bit later than you did and you suddenly like god any one of those comics would give me a total run for my money on any bit of the circuit so it's kind of (laughs) amazing to see how how much people's comedy develops as well and you miss that when you don't see people so I also just loved watching everyone else and just getting blown away by how good everybody was oh, that's so, so great. yeah it was a real so i think it's it, that's the bit we miss isn't it is watching other people's company yeah, develop as yeah. well as developing our own it's it's weird being a comedian in a vacuum that's not really not really the most hilarious setting in which to try and be comedic is it?
0: <laughs> yeah how did you find those zoom gigs i mean i i didn't do any i sort of decided to try or you know to try to get one like after gigs came back, which was a really dumb time for me to try to get into Zoom gigs because nobody cared about them by then. Uh, Yeah,
1: what was your... I'm more interested in your rationale. I was like, when we have to do Zoom, (laughs) I'm not interested. But once we can do normal shit, get me on the Zoom. I don't know. What what were you thinking?
0: Well, I spoke (laughs) to a few people and they were like, oh, yeah, there are some really good ones and some really bad ones. And I was like, how can they be different? Like, I don't understand. And sort of then watched a couple and I was like, oh, I'd quite like to to try this out. But by the time I got round to, I mean, I am the laziest comic on, on the circuit to the point where I feel even a bit icky calling myself a comic because I just don't gig regularly enough, I think, to justify calling myself that. Um, so yeah, mine was just born out of pure laziness, but obviously this is what you do. So you you had to kind of get involved with the whole Zoom scene
1: Well, it was funny because the stuff, um, you know, in our deepest, darkest moments when, uh, because most of us have at least one other life as well as being a comic, don't we? Mm. And I guess even the absolute big league comics, the same, you know, they'll be focusing on telly or radio and Mm -hmm. live so my I mean my other sort of normal thing that I do a lot of and love doing is um I do, I do lots of keynote um and after dinner speaking and public speaking um mm-hmm. sort of playing into the fact that I used to have a sort of um, you know reasonable business career and now obviously I'm a, I'm a belatedly reinvented um comic <laughs> and so I and whenever I'm in sort of doubt as to why I'm doing comedy which I think all of us have maybe I don't know a couple of times a year or something when a couple of things go wrong and you think I've got all that driving around and not earning an thing and the risk of dying on my ass so when I have those sort of darker <laughs> moments about myself I always think well it definitely makes me a better at all the other things I do so I'm a way better um, corporate speaker because I'm a comedian it makes me loads better yeah. but also um, I don't know how this is because you and I are slightly different age demographics but at my sort of stage in life, um, which makes me sound very elderly and I'm not, but you know, I'm (laughs) middle-aged. And in, in middle age, it's very easy For your world to get quite small and I watch people Mm. um sort of suddenly they're just not out at as many things they they live in a nice place they don't go to gigs they don't I'm generalizing there are exceptions to this but there's a tendency for the world to get quite small um in midlife and and um and I really really don't want that to be the case for myself I want to be out there meeting people and doing things that aren't things in my immediate sphere of reference so I think for me that the reason I carried on doing zoom gigs without even questioning it was a a sort of humility about my standing as a comic. I just think, you know, I'm still only five years in, which is still quite new. And yeah. I, I can't not gig for six months and still think that I'll know my material, know my sort of voice. But it was also um, a sort of just try, sort of in the keeping of trying stuff. I was like, well, if that's what there is available, who am I not to sort of cut my teeth on something that's, that's quite different. Um, And also I was getting corporate bookings on Zoom. And if you can do a comedy gig on Zoom, you can definitely do a decent corporate booking. So I was also thinking, well, if I can manage to face the demons of comedy on Zoom, I'll certainly be able to keep sort of some jaded, you know, telecom engineers happy or whatever I was doing so <laughs> so yeah it was more sort of um it was kind of a it sort of being curious I guess about what was out there and also being massively insecure about myself as a comedian <laughs> thing and I bet I better keep cracking on or I'll lose it completely it's
0: such a great attitude that, uh, and I mean I think it's one of the best qualities any person can have but especially a creative person is to be curious and to keep trying new things and you do talk about how you decided you kind of uh, took the step to do stand-up when you were in your like mid-40s after you developed a really successful career. Uh, and your story about the reason why you took that first step into stand-up is better than anyone else's I've ever heard. I mean, it, it's quite you really incredible. You've really built it up
1: now. <laughs> I
0: think the story lives I think up to it, Kelly. What
1: was it? Did you, did you get shot up to the moon and try your first gig in the Apollo space kind station?
0: Comedically <laughs> close enough to that. I mean,
1: I was a moon, a comedy moonshot. Um, yeah. I, yes. I, I mean, this is a terribly name droppy uh, story, but yes, I, I was working. Um, you've obviously done your research, but I worked in television most of my, <laughs> Career and um, I did. I worked in various different sort of um, comedy areas of telly, and I worked with Comedy Central. Particularly in the US uh, for quite a long time, and I used to—I was just sort of a business person, so I, I worked um, generating kind of revenue from shows mm. and, and TV formats. So I was kind of a little bit creative because I had to see what, what what might make money and sort of have a have a nose for something editorially strong. Mm. But at the end of the day, I was not a cool, sexy, creative person. I was there to <laughs> generate revenue and sell shit. Um, but I did get to meet some amazing um, on and off screen uh, talent as part of that job, and I'm um, one of the people. Yeah. One of the people i was lucky enough to uh, get to meet was the late great joan rivers and um and i sort of introduced her to the stage a few times at corporate events we had a couple of dinners together and then yeah the last time i saw her which was was um not long before she died sadly um she Mm. she was the one who said i should take up stand up and I said, you know, I said, I'm 45, you know, it's too late. I'm, I've got a massive day job. I'm a single mum. I, I, the ship sailed and she at the time was 81. And she said, you know, when you're my age, you're <laughs> going to look back at yourself at 45 and think, oh, why didn't I do that? So I, um, so it, it, it's funny and uh, how it took an 81 year old telling me at 45 that I was young and I could try (laughs) shit. And I'm so glad, you know, only five years on that someone did, because now five years on, I think, yeah, of course, at 45, do anything you bloody want. So it's always in my mind, even sort of, I say even now, um, I turned um, 51 in lockdown. And it is tempting on the one hand to go, that is that sounds like quite a old, quite a big number for an age. But another bit of me thinks, but says who? Like, you know, why? Yeah. Who cares? Like, like I, I, I don't feel very different. So when I was, you know, 21, so I, I sort of, um, I like the idea. And this is maybe... Um, relevant i'm actually writing a book on this topic at the moment grappling with what the angle is going to be exactly but um my belief about reinvention and lots of people god knows are going to have to reinvent um because of this um this this irritating little virus i think um we often think with with career reinvention or life reinvention we sometimes think that we'll do it Um, through necessity or maybe we'll downsize you know okay i've got to reinvent so i'll sell everything and i'll i'll go and be a sort of lavender farmer or whatever not that there'd be anything wrong with that but i think you can go i i sort of reinvented at a time in life when um when women in particular are meant to get a bit invisible and i sort of reinvented and went bigger and bolder and took with me the stuff i could do in the tv world and tried to bring it into a new career which was obviously more the corporate speaking side of what i do so Mm -hmm. i suppose um Yeah, that there's if there's one thing and, you know, being honest, I'm finding this pandemic as hard as anyone, you know, I've lost most of my work and and it's caused huge um, problems for me and my immediate sort of family and loved ones, like most people listening. But what I would say is I also do think that out of this very odd time where we're having to reassess. I'm not underestimating how many people are literally struggling to sort of pay a bill and put food on the table for themselves or their kids or whatever. So I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. Um, But I do also think that some possibilities may emerge where in years to come, people will say, God, if I hadn't had to take a a different fork in the road at that time, I might never have done this. So I suppose um, I have a combination of feeling enormously insecure and that I'll never work again and thinking, but actually, anything is possible at any point in your life um you just don't know so um there you go you didn't expect to get oprah winfrey on your podcast that's (laughs) what you just that's what you just had it's
0: it's absolutely amazing and i totally agree i'm a i'm a huge believer in transferable skills like i've had quite a varied career and i'm just banking on the idea that there's no such thing as bad experience that everything that I've done I'll be able to take something from and like you know there have been points where I've shied away from certain aspects of my CV and job interviews and kind of almost been apologetic for them like oh no but I never really wanted to do that I really want to be here Um, but now I'm kind of at the stage where I'm sort of like yeah like everything I've done has made me more creative or a better project manager whatever I've done Um, so I'm really really interested to hear about how that's worked for you and I've read that you uh you said something really interesting in an interview I read with you where you said that you to be a good performer on stage or a a sympathetic performer I guess you had to kind of unlearn some things that business kind of taught you Um,
1: yeah yeah that's definitely it's interesting isn't it because all the things that um that I did what you know I ended up in the in a my first sort of boardroom uh when I was in my early 30s because a small company creative production company that I ran got bought by Carlton which is part of ITV or was then a part, big part of ITV
0: mm-hmm. so I ended up
1: sitting on the board um and in it, it and it was a very odd experience for me it wasn't what my ambi- I was very ambitious but I wasn't sort of board level ambitious mm. and it was interesting um to end up I think because i had such raging imposter syndrome, not that I even knew what that was back then and not that I'd have dared articulate it even to myself, but I was sort of a youngish, um, a youngish woman. I had, I was a single mum of two very small children.
0: Mm-hmm. I was
1: um, very much in the minority age wise and entirely in the minority gender wise.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I just overcompensated massively and sort of was, was highly successful on paper and probably seemingly in the room was very successful, but I don't see that as a very successful time in my life because it was, it was a huge front. You know, the gap between who I am and who I was pretending to be was massive, and I, I didn't have the capacity to see it or say it as I can now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was under enormous strain doing all of that, and it never occurred to me to sort of ask for help or to say that things were difficult at home or at work. And it was really, and and I, you know, I sustained that. My kids are now in their twenties. You know, I sustained that. Um, for a couple of decades but it all of that stuff where you don't show a chink in the armor at work I think Mm -hmm. to get a funny sort of story and again I'm 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 definitely a sort of an overthinky comedian there'll be people listening going well that's a load of bollocks you just tell a joke and if people laugh good on you (laughs) which is also entirely correct Um, but my my way of presenting myself Um, was quite slick. So my stagecraft was quite good because I'd been on stages the world over for many years. So I could sort of command a room and and come across as quite a high status performer in my presence. But Mm -hmm. my actual voice, what I actually really think and who I really am is is not at all like that. So I had to sort of work out how to, so it didn't all look disingenuous and bullshit. I had to sort of work out, Mm -hmm. what do I actually really think about these things? that isn't just the glossy version I would give in a sort of um, boardroom presentation. So for me, um, it was definitely about sort of accepting my kind of flaws and vulnerabilities in a way I never had before. And maybe that is also a bit of an age thing. Maybe as you go through life, you sort of are more willing or more able to do that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But it was definitely I don't mean to keep banging on about age, but for me, no, no. I had to sort of unlearn at the boardroom to be a good performer. So, so I think for me what happened was I, I did very well at the beginning of my comedy career. So I sort of skyrocketed through the ranks for probably my first year. But I mm-hmm. think that was based on stagecraft and the fact that I came across as a very polished performer. But my yeah. voice wasn't, wasn't very strong in terms of, I think there's a, been a lot more creative people around me who've really mined their own voice and learn and haven't been able to hide behind stagecraft prematurely so I think possibly I sort of plateaued a bit after the first year while I got my shit together a bit more and now I think I'm sort of a bit more authentic as a comedian so so yeah in answer to your original question I think (laughs) um if you if you really sort of think you're bulletproof and you've got all the answers and Maybe that would work for some comics, but that isn't how I feel. So I don't think you'd, I'd be that funny if I was pretending that were the case. So, so my show, um, Super Cali Fragile Lipstick, yes. which was two two shows ago, um, was was that was all about that. It was all about what's behind the lipstick, what's behind the smile, really. So um, yeah. yes, I think that's quite. important. I don't know. Do you think so? Do do you do you, what's, do you have I'm, view about that?
0: I'm really obsessed with this idea at the minute, and it's something I feel very lucky doing these podcasts to get to speak to amazing acts like you who talk about what is kind of authentically them and finding that voice. And it's something I am still aspiring to. Um, I spoke to, I don't know if you know Issa Bonachera.
1: No, uh,
0: I don't. Issa, she's a wonderful Spanish comedian. She does quite a few shows for us at Jericho. Um, and and also I, I spoke to Tara Newton Wordsworth on the podcast last week. And actually they're both brilliant comedians, one Spanish, one Australian and they both kind of say like the thing I could very easily spend all my time talking about is like oh I'm from here and this is what people think of people from here and this is what we think of you from the outside but actually they want to talk about the stuff that's really interesting to them and I heard that as a comedian who spent most of my stage time so far being like oh I'm Irish and you all think this of Irish people and suddenly I've kind of realized recently like shit I don't really care about that stuff, and like I want to find the things that I really care about and talk about those on stage. And I think when I watch you, that's something I really get. I mean, your your comedy—it's very personal. Uh, it certainly seems quite unfiltered uh, at times, and it's it's so brilliantly honest. Or. Or at the very least, you do a marvellous job at making it seem very honest, even it's if definitely, it's not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. What I say is um, that, that I definitely, uh, everything I say comes from something very real and that does matter. And that I do have an opinion about it. Sometimes my starting point is, what I actually think, and then by the time mm-hmm. it becomes sort of properly bullet—well, as much as anything is bulletproof for us sure. as stand-ups—but by the time it comes sort of a set piece and makes it into my my sort of pro twenty, mm-hmm. it will—it might be quite a long way from the starting point of truth. So it might well be not, you know, I'm, I mean, I often talk on stage about being single still, mainly because you know, and I've been been with someone for over a year now, and we're very happy yeah. together. But it sort <laughs> of suits my persona more to be single, and you know, I'm not married, I don't live with anyone, so I feel like it's—it's it's not completely bending the truth yes. to still take that on yeah, yeah. um and but i do think i think one of the things that you do and i work i, I still work as an executive coach um with with people in in, in businesses and um, i'm doing a bit more of that in covid than i have done beforehand because i've got a bit more time yeah uh, well not that i've done beforehand but then i have done for many years so sure. i'm back into that a bit more and um it's funny because one of the things that you end up doing is you end up working out where you're actually at and what you actually think but then the version of yourself you show i i'm quite carefully curated on stage so i very much Mm. if i disclose something that's quite big i will have very much made the conscious decision to disclose that um it won't be a kind of it doesn't sort of slip out and i'll decide how to package it so i do start i do start with stuff i really have an opinion about and that matter but then i work it onto the stage you know me on stage is definitely not the same me as, as you'd see backstage, as you probably know, because we're yes, working together. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite, I think it, some people are almost the same person and I think I probably seem like the same person, but I'm not, there are things I'm much shyer off stage for starters, obviously uh-huh. you're not going to go on stage and be like, I'm so shy. I can't speak." <laughs> to you. So, um, so yeah, I do think, but it's interesting what you say about, um, you know, your real opinion and what you actually really want to talk about, because I think it's really hard as a comic to, we tend to all start with similar things, don't we? You know, sex lives, work yeah. life, what we look like, where we're from, talking about our kids or our parents, or yeah, you know, it, it's yeah. there's sort of common points, and then we start to get a bit more interesting, don't we? As we as we move on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so for you, when you were starting out, I guess you had the the advantage of when you were starting comedy, of having a bit more life experience, being a bit more mature. Uh, I don't mean in terms of age. I mean, in terms of like outlook and knowing yourself that bit better. Um, And so was this something that that have you always been quite good at finding that balance between being truthful on stage, but not giving away too much to the point where you're like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that or wish I hadn't said that. Because that seems to me something that I've spoken to a few comedians where I think they've learned a little bit too late like I wasn't quite ready to talk about that even if it's something absolutely fascinating um it might just be a bit too soon for them but have you made those mistakes or have you always been quite disciplined
1: I think because of um I've all I've made a sort of a lot of my living has been made out of based on sort of some degree of um I'm not saying I am hugely emotionally intelligent but I've had to Mm -hmm. be quite aware of emotional intelligence for lots of the things I've done so the way I I I Mainly, the only thing I think I did well in my career in television was that I think I was good with people, I knew how to manage people, and I knew how to influence people and and i mean not in a cynical way and make build relationships so i knew I knew how to make people want to work with me and for me mm-hmm. and I suppose that requires a degree of emotional intelligence and then I studied you know i i i you know did a neurolinguistic programming um masters years ago and I started doing executive coaching and and other things outside of my day job so I think if there's a degree of emotional intelligence um, and awareness and if you think that's important in your life then I suppose you're quite aware of yourself so then you're probably aware of how you come across or certainly what you might want to and not want to say so mm-hmm. there are things you know i i did a show my um i think it was when i did a double uh, header with catherine Bohart, cat call i think that was the one where i talked a lot about my son's autism mm-hmm. and people thought when i did that god you really shared a lot and actually i shared very little about my son specific i did share some things about his interests but you mm-hmm. wouldn't really have known my son from that show and I certainly would never, if there was any, there was no punching down, but if anyone was the butt of any jokes, it was never him. It was yeah. always me or someone else. So it probably seemed like an extremely generous share about a very intimate relationship, i.e. with my son. But actually yeah. there was nothing in there that wasn't really consciously crafted Um to be appropriate, a level of sharing for me. So there were things that I really wouldn't talk about that happened between me and him. And there were things I was happy to put in a, in a comedy show and the Venn diagram between the two was probably minimal overlap actually. So, so yeah, I think it, um, I think I was quite aware as to what I did and didn't want to say. And I'm a bit like that, you know, backstage as well. I can be a bit not private, but there's things I just don't really want to tell everybody because why yeah, would i Of died, course, you know, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah. Do you find that it's a, did you find that getting, cause how old were you when you got into
0: Comedy. uh I think I did my first set when I was twenty-eight or tw- just about to turn twenty-eight. So that's um, the complete
1: other end of the scale. I mean, I know there are com- comedians who start out, you know, ten years younger than that. But yeah. You, um, but that yeah. must have been a very different experience because I guess you were still finding your not finding your adult voice, but you're still sort of no, no, it, at twenty-eight. No, no, th- I think very you? much
0: so, and and something as well, like uh, increasingly so recently, and I guess having had a bit of time to think about it over lockdown. Uh, and and starting these podcasts and having these conversations, I'm thinking about it more than ever. Um, is that that idea of what matters to me? And it's it's a tricky thing because, like, I have some bits that over the last few years I've developed, and I know they're reliable. Like, I know that the the basic function of the job is to go out and make people laugh, and if I say these things, I can make people laugh. But whether I care about them as much as I did when I wrote them three years ago. That's the bit that I don't really know now. And I think I, I now have a more of a desire to talk about some things. Um, like mental health is is a big thing that I talk about a lot off stage. I, I do quite a bit like mental health uh, kind of campaigning and advocacy, that type of thing, because I've lived with depression. But I have nothing on that on stage. I've not made that funny yet. And then seeing someone like Chelsea Birkby do what she does and speaks about she's so health. good, isn't she? So incredibly yeah. in that she is, area.
1: Yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. Well, I think she's also. I think she's full stop brilliant. But yeah, the stuff she does in that area is, and if she's she's an example of somebody who I think from the start mind her own authentic voice funnily she she yes. didn't go for a sort of quick she didn't go for the easy gag she was yeah. like I'm going to find a way to do this and and I, and I think it, uh, she's hugely impressive um you know on stage and off in that regard did you was it you who posted um I know for mental health um awareness day was it you who posted about sertraline
0: uh oh yeah you? uh well I posted yeah. I posted something very recently for world mental health day about yeah about medication and Sertraline, venlafaxine and a yeah. no, am- yeah. man. Yeah. But finding the right one, yeah, it took me quite a while. To, to yeah, find out. Because right I was medication. on
1: sertraline for a bit. Yeah, I didn't, oh, start, yeah. I didn't start my sort of um, my my chemical uh, exploration. <laughs> I didn't think I'd ever suffered from depression until I first did um, actually not that long ago in my late 40s. And oh, yeah. I then realized perhaps I had suffered from it in quite a lot of different ways in my life. I yeah. never called it that. But it became unignorably bad um, or bad. That makes it sound like it's something wrong. It may, may, it became unignorable sure. in my late 40s. And the first um, antidepressant that I tried was sertraline which I think is possibly... I don't know if it still is, but I think at the time was very much the NHS go to. Right. You need That's antidepressants. Yeah, exactly. Let's give you sertraline, which didn't yeah. work for me either. But um, I think when you do get the chemical um, balance right, it can be really uh, transformative. And I think lots of them, um, well, there probably are. Well, I know there are lots of comedians ha- with a little bit of help uh, being given from the old antidepressants. I <laughs> yeah. Think it's that unusual in our in our profession.
0: Certainly. Yeah.
1: It's a it's, it's a funny
0: thing to kind of try to make those things that feel very difficult, funny. And obviously, like you said, you know, um, with your your son being autistic, for example, that isn't always going to be a picnic. But the way you spoke about it on stage, it was never difficult to hear about it. And you did find that separation between, as you said, stuff you wouldn't say on stage because it's private, obviously and stuff that was okay to say about it. With something like uh, your, your kind of recent mental health experience that you've just mentioned, is that something that, again, you would want to go through that same process of trying to find what feels okay for you to talk about? It? Or is it something that maybe you just don't re- you're not particularly drawn to as a a potential kind of vein of
1: comedy? I've done it. I did talk about it in um, the Super Cali show two oh, years yes, ago. I did course, I did yeah. talk about it, but not, um, I, I mean, it was definitely a part of it. And I did specifically talk about antidepressants and depression. Mm-hmm. And I did a bit about, you know, people who will be like, oh, I'd never take antidepressants or why are you doing that? You know, people who are quite judgmental about antidepressants. Yeah, and I did a yeah. bit. Um, that was basically about kind of a kind of funny version of you know you don't exactly do that as you go to like by the time you're taking antidepressants you have thought about a few other options no one's (laughs) like whoa you know when can I start my antidepressants mum I'm nearly at secondary school you know is it time yet (laughs) so I kind of um so I did a bit about that which was really a bit of a kickback against people who are so judgmental about how you treat depression Um, and then I did um it's funny because I haven't um i was diagnosed as being bipolar only 4 years ago right. and i which is kind of like a lot of my family are bipolar uh, so it isn't on both sides so probably not a great surprise sure. but i didn't think and i still struggle to think well am i what i think someone with bipolar is and then i think well that's terrible really because i'm still looking at stereotypes and judging the words what judging the diagnosis of God, bipolar yeah, um even yeah. with regard to myself and i thought about um I don't really talk about it a huge amount, even off stage. It's obviously quite personal, mm. even though I'm now talking about it in a sure. very unpersonal space. <laughs> but we we are talking about mental health, and I know you've got the links to mind and so on. So I do think it's important yes. to be honest about that stuff as well. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't know how the thing I'm most aware of, so I'm a newbie bipolar person. So as and I may not be new to having having it, but I'm new to knowing about it and yeah. to, to having it as a sort of badge that I understand as something to do with me. Mm-hmm. What I'd be very wary of is having a sort of, um, is in any way inadvertently being really disrespectful of or dismissive of something that, is so important and so Mm. central to so many people's lives either because they are bipolar or they've got loved ones or close people who are so i'm just really wary of knowing my shit not just what i think about it but what would be appropriate because of course in an audience if i talk about autism there'll be many people in the the audience with a connection to autism and the same i imagine would apply to bipolar so i don't know i i don't know if you'd feel the same i don't know how it's hard to know how you how you broach it without potentially really making people feel a bit inadequate, I guess.
0: Yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating area and it's, um, and and that's a very considered way to approach it, uh, that, that you've spoken I'm also day. really
1: bad at writing jokes and I only knew four <laughs> years ago and it would take me five to write a good joke that's what I'm saying I just got no good shit on it yet but I'm that, trying that's the thing
0: <laughs> that like I know I've spoken at kind of various like events for November and and that kind of thing about mental health and I've shared stuff online and I'm always floored by the responses I get from people kind of privately and and kind of publicly um about their own experiences and it's always really humbling and and like yeah i mean the the reason i do it is because i think it does help people the responses i get from people are always very kind and say i didn't know this or i can relate to this and it's really made me think about whatever it may be that we're talking about um so i feel relatively confident having lived with depression i think for probably kind of seven or eight years, but really it's only been diagnosed for the last kind of five or so. Um, But I've lived with it for, you know, a not insubstantial portion of my life. And so I do feel relatively confident that I can speak about it with some degree of authority, albeit every single person experiences mental health uh, difficulties in unique ways. So I'm, I'm always keen to stress my experience of mental health isn't going to be the same for everybody else or indeed possibly anybody else. Um, but I do think hearing, even if there are nuggets, you know, even if there's one thing that you've experienced that someone else in the audience might be able to relate to, um, you know, in a, in a talk that might last five, 10 minutes or whatever, if there's just one little thing, then I sort of think it's worth it. Um, but it is that thing of it's like, it's also high risk. I mean, you have to remember as comedians, you know, it's, it's great for us to talk about the things we care about, but the bread and butter of comedy, I suppose, is like people come out for a good time and often to forget about their troubles. So how much of that do you want to bring on stage and find that balance, I guess?
1: it's also I think not putting yourself forward we all I think whenever we talk about things on stage it's really helpful for us to have some idea you can never guess on your that particular night but have some idea is this thing I'm talking about really very relatable is this really very unique to me Mm. and I do think as well um because depression and anxiety and um mental health problems are so rife you know so Mm. many people in the audience will have had so there's no great there's no great excitement in going, oh, I'm bipolar. Or, I've had depression and anxiety because so many people will be like, yeah, you know, and what of it? Um, because it's so, it's so common and so prevalent in society. So I think you've also got to think, well, what is What is my, what am I bringing to this? Then what am I saying
0: yeah, that is is yeah. in
1: some way funny, unique, interesting. I do think when I, um I had, I had quite a lot of treatment in um, a psychiatric hospital um, at, when I first had some really kind of severe depression. And then again, a year later. So I, mm. and I had a lot of, group therapy in this same hospital so one year and then for for weeks and weeks one year every day um full time every day I was a day patient for weeks and then the following year I had another spell and I will say that I have never laughed as much um and obviously (laughs) cried as much but I've never laughed as much as I did in those group sessions and with those people and I don't know what you would describe it as whether it is a kind of gallows humor but I and I've still got some really dear friends from that time and there was something about the desperation and the surreal situation we were in, that even though lots of us were literally battling to want to keep going on the most fundamental level, there was yeah. something really funny about it as well. So, I mean, I literally used to laugh every day until my face hurt and my stomach hurt, and lots of us did. Oh, wow. um, about it just in terms of the contact between us it wasn't that obviously (laughs) if you're a group session someone was having some awful thing nobody was (laughs) like bristling themselves we weren't inappropriate but there was something about the (laughs) link between us all because obviously we're all just whatever normal is we're just normal people who can see on the one hand the absurdity of what was going on for us and on the other hand could not get out of its grip so there was something very funny about that period genuinely very funny and I think probably that would be my angle on it would be the sort of um yeah the kind of the the the, the kind of intensity of the good and the bad of that experience so yeah, certainly laughter was a big part of my depression actually um and and possibly I don't know if it is for people when they're on their own I mean I think the group therapy made it really different because there was a there was a band of not very merry people (laughs) (laughs) doing it on your own so um but yeah Yeah. that, that there's something that laughter and um depression are kind of easy bedfellows I think
0: yeah god absolutely um it's oh i just it's an endlessly fascinating area to me like i think even if i hadn't lived with kind of mental health problems i i think it's just i think it's just endlessly fascinating yeah the the one experience, is that why
1: jericho works with so i just cut straight through you. oh on no no podcast. it's
0: quite all right <laughs>
1: But is that why Jericho, so, because Jericho does a lot with mind. I know I did, yeah. I, did um, I think I've done one of your benefits. Um, and is well, what's the link between Jericho and mind? Is that, is it's that to do with your own personal thing or not? It's
0: actually nothing to do with me because I, I, you know, I'm very lucky that Alex and Harry kind of brought me into the Jericho fold after they'd made such a success of it. So I just get to piggyback off their achievements. Um, but it was something when Alex and Harry first started running gigs together um, I mean, they were both students in Oxford at the time, or at least Harry was a student and Alex may have just graduated, but they were running gigs in college bars around Oxford. And that's kind of how this iteration of Jericho comedy was sort of born. Um, and they knew they wanted to run them as kind of charity events because they're both very considerate, very kind guys. And yeah, that I spoke to them a little bit about it on a previous episode of the podcast when I had them both on together. And they kind of just said they took all the issues that they sort of cared about and that they thought people in comedy cared about, and they made a big list. And the only thing that really felt right for them was mental health charities. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly, I guess, the fact that they were going into a lot of Oxford colleges as well, where there's so much pressure and, you know, Oxford... And Cambridge and, you know, some of those kind of top, top universities, probably more than any other, it's fair to say, have disproportionate numbers of students who experience uh, difficult mental health uh, situations. And so I think that yeah. that was a big part of why they felt the need to support those. But obviously, I mean, as they've gone on and as the years have gone on, mental health funding has been so um well just inexplicably poor um you know there is a genuine mental health crisis
1: we're very aware of um you know increasingly we're aware of the mental health toll that this is taking on us all but even at the most sort of basic level mm-hmm. i don't know if you've noticed it but living in fairly central london as i do you know in camden mm. i'm pretty sure there are now people on the street who are in i mean i think there always have been lots of you know the link between mental Ill health and homelessness is obviously mm-hmm. well documented and uh, you know, very, very sort of um, connected. But I just think there are so many people that just are at the most desperate end of needing care um, for their mental well being and just aren't getting it, let alone people who maybe are coping, but it would be more of a luxury item to get some help yeah. with it. So I think that yeah. we're probably going to see quite a long term effect on people's mental health and the capacity of the state to sort of cope with that so i think it's a real watching my kids you know who are at the sort of young end of going through this and Mm. friends of mine at my age i don't think anyone's really spared this um so i do think it's interesting to think whether it's you know as it was for alex and harry thinking well yeah uni kids you know traditionally and particularly oxbridge um have been under a lot of pressure and Mm may struggle I do think there's a massive struggle going on across the piece at the moment, really. And I I don't think, um, and everyone's on their own dealing with it. It's a bit shit, isn't it?
0: (laughs) I think that sums it up very nicely. It is a bit shit. Um, But yeah, it's why, you know, charities like Oxfordshire Mind, um, they they are so heroic. And yes, I, I love being associated with Jericho comedy. I'm very proud to be associated with it. But I can't take anywhere near as much credit as Alex and Harry deserve. And Chelsea, of course, is a, a trustee of Oxford your Mind as well. Those guys are, are legit heroes and people like you who give up your time to work with us uh, to help us raise money for Oxford your Mind as well. It's incredibly kind. Um, and this oh, would seem like a, a fairly opportune moment to play a little message from our wonderful friends at Oxford your Mind. So have a little listen to this. <laughs> Are you caring for someone and struggling to cope? Suffering with low mood or feeling anxious?
1: Experiencing discrimination and not sure of your options? You are not alone. Did you know that you can ask to speak to an Oxfordshire Mind Wellbeing Worker through your local GP practice? A wellbeing worker can help you to identify what is important to you, offer time, time, space and support for you to work out the positive changes you want to make and support you to reach those goals, tell you about relevant services you can access to improve your wellbeing and support you with making referrals. Our service is currently available over the phone to anyone registered with a participating GP practice in the City and South West Oxfordshire. For more information, please ask at your GP practice or call the Oxfordshire Mind Information Line on 01865 247
0: 788. All right, Callie, you know Jericho Comedy is a warm, friendly comedy club where acts always have a lovely time. But I'm sorry to say that's not the vibe of this next section. It's now time for Press and Questions, a series of challenging, thought-provoking, intensely difficult questions. All I need from you, Callie, are some honest answers. Can you do that for us?
1: Sounds a bit like PMQs, is it a bit like that? And if so, are you Starmer or Johnson? That's what
0: I want to know. I do have a, a ridiculous head of hair at the moment, so I'm unfortunately going to have to say I'm the Johnson figure here.
1: Okay, which... well, rather rather you than me identifying. Uh, yeah, with <laughs> I'm yes. taking
0: the hit on this one. You can be Keir yeah. Starmer.
1: <laughs> I'm very well qualified barrister, throw anything at me, and I'm ready.
0: <laughs> All right, Callie, see how you deal with this question one. What's your least favorite chore?
1: Oh, that's got to be anything toilet-related. I, what I would mm. say is, um, I spent lockdown, the first uh, two three months of lockdown with uh, my 23-year-old son and my 59-year-old boyfriend, and I did think, <laughs> oh, an age when a man knows to put the toilet seat down after pissed on the rim, <laughs> so yeah, to do with clearing up men's piss off the rims of the toilets, say, is not my favorite chore.
0: I think that would be a very popular answer. If this were like family fortunes or something, I think that's the top of the the screen there.
1: Uh Respect to all the men listening. I like, never pissed on the rim. Good for you. By all means please come and live here instead of the people I live with who do. So I'm aware not all men to you, but the men I'm with in this house do that.
0: <laughs> I I'm one of the proud pissers. I always put the seat down, but proud pissing
1: Uh, you should do something about that a proud Proud pisser yeah (laughs) (laughs) it definitely sounds like
0: something I should speak to someone about Uh, (laughs) can you name three actors who have played Batman on film
1: god I'm really bad at. um, I'm a BAFTA voting member so I should not be admitting to how bad I am at remembering actors (laughs) names I don't think I can even uh, hold on I can see one of them uh, the recent most recent uh, what's his name this is really gripping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, what? I can't even remember one. No, I'm just going to go no. I can't just remember Just say any. no.
0: That That yeah, is also no. a perfectly acceptable answer. Not everybody has spent their life learning the Batman actors like I have. And that's okay. Because
1: uh, I, like I have watched every superhero movie going because my son loves them. So I've watched every Batman incarnation. So the fact I can't remember any of them is shocking. So go <laughs> on, tell me.
0: Um, three of them. Oh, my goodness. Three of them. Uh, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Ben Affleck, George oh, Clooney, Adam West. Only
1: really uh, play him?
0: George Clooney was uh, in the worst Batman film ever, Batman and Robin. It was very campy. It was the one that got a lot of attention because the Batsuit was given nipples.
1: Oh, yes. And who was Robin in that?
0: That was Chris O'Donnell. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. Well, I... The only one I could place and I couldn't come up with a name was Michael Keaton. That was the one I could see but I couldn't name him. Oh, so yeah, yeah. I, I think that if anyone from BAFTA is listening they can strip me of my... <laughs> <trip>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you ever need a second opinion on a Batman film I've got some strong ones. So if they're ever yeah, up for an yeah, award a have a voice. word. <laughs>
1: they're not up for an award but when they are I'll call you.
0: <laughs> Kelly, who in your opinion is the funniest person in the world?
1: That's a really good question. The person I think is the most talented person in the world, um, in a comedic way, is Stephen Colbert. So we oh, work. Yeah. He does the um, Late Show. Yeah, yeah. But we did the Colbert Report with him on Comedy Central for years, which was his kind of alter ego. So it was kind of a fa- him being a fake. Yes. Version now is and he is so i've seen him do his stuff live lots of times when he was still with us at um, comedy central and i've been i don't know if you watch them but anybody um listening who doesn't watch either um seth Meyers' closer look or stephen colbert late show yeah blogs which they do um four nights a week whenever they're not Mm -hmm. on break and they're so good but Colbert, who who trained with the Upright Citizens Brigade and Second City and was yeah. in Saturday Night Live, he's just so. When you look at what he does, and we're we're trying to knock out a sort of strong new ten minutes, and it might take us eighteen months to get it right. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Twelve minutes every night, and his capacity to sort of like inhabit the different voices and be I just watch his monologues. I'm like, oh my god, you're just a genius. So yeah. I suppose is he the funniest person in the world? I don't know, but he probably is immediately the most talented person i would say
0: that's a brilliant answer he and steve Carell did one of the best sketches i've ever seen like the premise of it is so simple it was um the waiters who uh waiters who are made sick by the sound of food and so they're just reading out this menu to a customer and just both of them becoming increasingly nauseated the more they have to describe like the the truffles (laughs) and it's just such a funny bit but yes absolutely Colbert total genius that is an excellent answer
1: yeah and watching what they did in lockdown as well watching how they if you think it was hard us doing stuff on zoom then from their homes and even now they're doing it with their audiences but they're back in studio but they had just weeks and months of doing this really funny stuff from home so it was um yeah it was a bit of a lesson to me it's, so I do yeah. think he's a master he provides a master class in how to do it every night he does something I think
0: oh absolutely superb answer Callie what is your go-to chocolate bar
1: well, I'm off sugar at the moment. Oh, my and, goodness. And, oringly, yes, I stopped it in sugar um, once I'd gained the lockdown stone that people gained. I was like, oh, I don't <laughs> like this. Uh, but normally, um, I'm going to probably say Toblerone because I like a Toblerone, old school, but also my dad loves the Toblerone. And whenever we, whenever I see a Toblerone, I always think of my daddy. Aww. So uh, I'd say it's the sort of thing that I like and I like it because he likes it.
0: Oh, that's a wonderful answer. Uh, Kelly, if you bought a boat, what would you call it?
1: Oh, what would I call it? Well, I used to, when I was an underage barmaid, uh, which I was from, that's how I paid my way through sixth form college. So from oh, sixth, yeah. well, 16 to 18. So I wasn't underage the whole time, but I was an underage barmaid during sixth form. And I, I can't remember why, but there were all these old, Old, old codgers who would sit at the bar, and they would have their own tankards, and I would know them, and I would give them their beers. And um, for some reason, I instead of telling them my name was Callie Beaton, I said my name was Patsy Beak, and I don't know why I said that. But anyway, <laughs> they thought my name was Patsy Beak, so I think I would call it um, the, I would call her the Patsy B. <laughs> that
0: is a great name. That's brilliant. If you ever have like develop another character or a comedic alter ego.
1: Patsy I really Beak. want to
0: see barmaid Patsy Beak.
1: Yeah, I know. It was, I, I don't know what possessed me, really. But anyway, there you go. So, yeah, Patsy <laughs> Beak, I think she'll make a make a comeback.
0: Excellent. Great name for a boat. Kelly, my final question for you is, if you could have a day out with Stephen Fry, what would you do?
1: Well, if I could have a... My son is a huge Stephen Fry uh, fan and obviously Stephen Fry did Last Chance to See, which was a brilliant, brilliant series. And there's a book of it about... um but you know various creatures that were close to extinction, mm. and because my son is a, a zookeeper, an autistic zookeeper and wannabe zookeeper, because he's um like lots of people lost his job, so he is no longer a zookeeper, but yeah. is very much hoping to return to it and is studying um, animals again at the moment. Um, I would I would do something with him, so I would go with Stephen Fry and my son, and I probably if Stephen Fry were amenable would say my son knows quite a lot of stuff about animals. Can we pick a place? To go together where um you and my son can talk about animals and i will just be the dumbo listening so i would i would i would be the sort of um i would pimp Stephen fry out <laughs> for my phone and i think he'd be delighted with that as a nice little day out and i'd make the sandwiches and everything ah oh, Stephen fry would love
0: that i'm sure that
1: sounds like a great
0: day out he would and, and could- sandwiches as well who would say no to that
1: Exactly, and they could talk about the cockapoo, Uh, not the cockapoo. The cocker, I can't remember what it's called. It's not the cockapoo. There's a there's a bird, kakapo. The kakapo, which is um, which is a weird bird that um, there's quite a funny bit. Anyone who hasn't seen Last Chance, if you Google Stephen Fry. Kakapo, you'll see quite a funny bit with him and the strange lumpen Kakapo bird. And I think my son and <laughs> he could probably talk about that for about three hours. and then have an egg and cress sandwich. It'd be a lovely day. Ah, oh, fantastic.
0: I know I'm going to be googling Stephen Fry Kakapo after this. That's a that great
1: Because that is, as we know, a hybrid dog. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, there we go.
0: <laughs> Here at Jericho Comedy, we're all about delivering a fantastic range of different types of shows. Stand-up, themed shows, improvised shows, online shows, and now, podcasts. In addition to this, the Jericho Comedy Podcast, we have another wonderful podcast called The Dinner Party. In each episode, I speak to a fascinating guest to hear all about their dream dinner party. I want to know the venue, the menu, and the guest list. It's so much fun hearing from these people about why they'd invite their fantasy guests who they are, how they've inspired that person, and what the conversation might go like. Here's a clip from a recent episode featuring a comedian who's appeared on Live at the Apollo, Mock the Week, and The MASH Report. He's the voice of Conservative Britain. Here is the fantastic Jeff Norcutt introducing us to one of his dream dinner party guests. And your next guest again is someone who's another uh, complex figure. He was part of the crazy gang mm. uh, from Wimbledon in the eighties and nineties. Later, became a TV presenter. You got John Fashanu coming to the dinner party. Big Fash, yeah. I mean, he. You was, uh, you grew up in Wimbledon, winning. didn't you? So you were a, a Wimbledon fan, I'm assuming.
2: Yeah, I went through that journey with that side. You know, around '86 eight, and through winning the cup. And Fash was around for a few years after that as well, unlike a lot yeah. of. Yeah. He did stay at the club for a while. He, uh,
0: when I was reading about him today, he sounds like he was mad. Like
2: no, no, he's a dog. violent,
0: temperamental.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crikey. He was so he was quite a violent player. You know, he took out quite a few people. Gary Stevens involved in that. Vinnie Jones tackle where him and Vinnie. I mean, who wants to be at the on the end of that? Vinnie Jones and <laughs> sandwiched, Uh that Gary Stevens in, in in a tackle. He also took out Gary Mabbott's eye socket with an elbow. Yeah, yeah, He's I saw the photo off. earlier. He's underrated as a player. You know, I think he was he was devastating in the air, and I always think footballers that can head a ball are underrated because it's it's essentially a volley with your face, isn't it? Like the bravery of
0: it. <laughs> get yeah. yeah. And Do you think he, he deserved more kind of England caps than he got? He only got the two. He got the two, yeah. Um, no, no,
2: is the truth. I think that <laughs> I just don't think that he suited. You know, the way that, that Wimbledon played at the time was was perfect for Fash, but I don't think the way that England played would have ever um, suited. Sure. Him. Now, I suppose the closest to him would have probably been Shearer in a way, which is you know very good in the air. You know, if mm-hmm. you get the service into Shearer like that Uh, and also Fash was quite good from distance where he where he didn't have much game was one-on-one finishing he was very bad in
0: 2007 the times named him the uh, 22nd in the list of 50 worst players ever to have played in the premiership dang that's harsh that's wrong I mean I'm just going to say that
2: is not correct (laughs) he had a great record from the penalty spot almost up there with Matt Letitia. you know and he played yeah I think I think that is I think you know if you were talk about most divisive figures, you know, or yeah. wrongs, like you can make an eye <laughs> of that. I think as a player, I think sometimes that's just a bit of a simplistic reading of his yeah. kind of persona yeah. and what he did on the pitch. I could show you like some of the goals he scored from distance it were were set ex- were exceptional. But he was, well, he's, you know, he is, um, he he's a he's a confusing guy. You know, he's got and he's been in with his brother. And the legacy of how he treated his brother when his brother came out, it's it's dodgy, man.
0: Yeah, like, it's, you know, it's very difficult to sugarcoat it. Like, he was very cruel about that. Um, There was also the match-fixing scandal. I know charges were dropped, but, yeah, he's like, he's a complex guy, to say the least. Like, what would you want to pick his brain about if you had him there at your dinner party?
2: I just want to know what what is going on. Also, you know, he... He was involved in a, uh, a corruption, you know, a bribery, uh, oh. scale, which he got acquitted of when I was a Wimbledon fan. But he, he was accused that he'd taken money to throw football matches. Now, a bit of context. When I was about 14, 15, for some reason, I was able to write reports for local newspaper. But he, he, <laughs> I, I said in a report... Uh, was John Fashnu trying to throw away the points, the ball, or both after he'd handled the ball for a penalty once already and did it again in the 90th minute? Now, I wasn't at that time thinking Fash has taken a bung here. But yeah. it went to court and, you know, certainly as Wimbledon fans, we could all remember times when Fash came back into the penalty area when he didn't need to yeah,
1: and, yeah.
2: and uh, you know, took out players. So, so yeah, he. I would, just, I would just love to get a sense of the man. I'm not saying... He's a good human being. I'm just saying that
0: I yeah. think
2: he, you've got to have that firecracker in there, you know, of a dinner party and it could be fashion.
0: He's, he's such an interesting character to choose because the, the temptation maybe for a lot of people would be to choose people that they just really like and would have a really nice relaxed evening with. But it sounds like you kind of want to mix things up and sort of challenge yourself almost yeah. a little bit with this guy here.
2: Yeah. I suppose I've always been like that. You know, I don't, I don't, think i don't like i suppose like my both my parents which uh, you know they were both complicated and, and challenging people in a way so mm-hmm. so therefore you know I, th- I think fashion and i would love to see how fash would be challenged by the people around him it's worth saying as well you know you mentioned earlier about him doing tv presenting that was that was while he was still a footballer so he you know he, yeah. i think he was the first footballer to wear red uh boots as well um oh you know, yeah yeah sort of ahead of the game in, yeah. in, a, in a lot of ways. He also had one of the shittest catchphrases ever with a Wooga. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll remember from um, Gladiators. From Gladiators, of course, yeah. So he had something in him, you know, but it, it, both him and his brother were, uh, came, you know, they were um, orphans, you know, so yeah. they, they yeah. came from Bernardo's home. So, you know, whatever whatever difficulty is in him, you know, partly came from, you know, he had a t- very, very tough upbringing. It's not to excuse yeah All of it, but um, I maybe want to get him talking. Yeah,
0: what's the real fash? He's he's a fascinating choice, Jeff. I I mean, definitely, I can see the appeal of having him there. He would be a brilliant person to to kind of dig a little deeper into. All right, Callie, you're a very insightful person. You know people. You mentioned earlier you're emotionally intelligent. Indeed, you're a qualified life coach, so I'm hoping that you'll be able to help some of our regular Jericho Comedy audience members who have been in touch to tell us about some of their problems. Do you think you could offer a little bit of
1: help? Oh, no worries at all. I'm the the person for the job, yeah.
0: Excellent. Oh, thank you so much. All right, well, Belle has been in touch. She says, I've been held captive in a castle by a hideous beast for a long time now. I miss my father and my previous life. Now my days are filled with talking to teapots, candlesticks and clocks. I've also begun to feel complicated feelings toward my captor. Is this love or a classic case of Stockholm syndrome?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's more being gaslit than love, Belle. Mm. And what I would say is that I think it's really important for us to rely on ourselves as women rather than teapots or beasts. (laughs) Perhaps the imprisonment is not actually a castle. Perhaps the imprisonment is you, Belle. Needing allow yourself to have the confidence of your own voice, the courage of your own convictions, and decide who is it you want to be in the world and to break free of that imprisonment and not allow it to keep you down. So I think this is for me it's this is a feminist rally cry to oh. not let a beast or a teapot gaslight you bell because you are worth more than that.
0: That is extraordinary. That is a wonderful answer. Belle, if you're listening from the Chill out. Oh.
1: We don't know if that, do they let her listen to this?
0: Oh, that's true. That's true. I don't know if there's a kind of uh, walking, talking iPhone that lets Belle listen to the Jericho Comedy Podcast, but hopefully she can hear it because that was some wonderful advice.
1: Yeah, she needs to go and kick ass.
0: (laughs) Well, Callie, we've had a text in from the cowardly lion from the magical land of Oz. He says, I'm fed up with people calling me cowardly. But I'm too scared to challenge people who use the name. How do I find the courage to confront people? I mean, I'm a lion. Shouldn't I just eat anyone who annoys me?
1: Yeah, but you, see you can uh, you can go for the sort of power, the sort of brute force approach. But once you've had the snack of the person that you were going to take on uh, and actually build a proper sustaining relationship with, but you've eaten them, you probably feel great for, you know, an hour, maybe eight hours, and then you've digested the person and you're done no further. So I think it's all got to be about long-termism in those relationships. And really what you're doing is you're you're standing up for yourself. So it's not about can you overpower the other person, it's can you not let yourself be overpowered by your own cowardice so I would say and this is what I used to say to my daughter when she was sort of um, you know a teenage girl and coping with all the things that teenage girls cope with in society I used to say it's about appropriate assertiveness so just a little bit of how can I because assertiveness is when you're okay and the other person is okay so what would you say that is true to what you want to say but doesn't diminish the other person so I would probably work on being appropriately assertive rather than eating people you tell me i'm cowardly <laughs> that's just me that might be an old-fashioned approach but that would be my i'm
0: advice. assuming that last part that you said about eating people that wasn't part of the talk with your daughter
1: maybe i'm wrong you know- uh, no, it generally wasn't. I mean, I we, we touched on that very briefly. She seemed to think that wasn't part of the kind of culture of the sort of Camden School for Girls where she went. So we left that fairly quickly and just moved on to what what is a way that a young woman can be appropriately assertive, and indeed a young man. But um, I hadn't ever thought of it from the perspective of a lion, but I can see it <laughs> when you were called cowardly all the time. So, um, yeah, and as somebody whose hair looks much like a lion... Uh, When it rains, not a lion when it rains, but when it rains, my hair goes very 80s, and I look a bit like a lion. So uh, (laughs) I I relate to the fact that that might be quite difficult. So yeah, appropriate assertion.
0: Appropriate assertion. I am going to be taking this away, Callie. I have just learned something from your advice to the cowardly lion.
1: Amazing, wonderful. I never thought that's a sentence I'd hear being said in a podcast. Only at Jericho
0: Comedy. (laughs) Well, Callie, the final message we have in, uh, we got a message on Twitter from the Evil Queen. She says, I've got a mirror in my room that keeps telling me I'm only the second most beautiful person in the world. I guess it's quite a nice thing to say, but the mirror's tone is quite passive-aggressive. Should I kill the most beautiful person to shut my mirror up, or am I just leaning into the idea of nominative determinism?
1: I think you just go and get some Botox, get some, just do something <laughs> about what nature gave you, really buy into the whole beauty myth and uh, yes, get rid of all sense of who you actually are. No, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> um, so I think really this is about what is the definition of beauty mm. and uh, if we're holding on to external beauty, at some point it will no longer be ours because uh, we will age and so i think it's really about um deciding that you know being the second is amazing but actually even if you didn't score on the league of beautiful women who cares <laughs> smashing that mirror on the ground and never asking it another question again
0: oh here here it definitely sounds like the mirror was made by some kind of makeup company or something it sounds like
1: or maybe it's... it was made by instagram do you think where everything oh got to look yeah
0: which just Banks on people feeling bad about themselves to fuel their business model
1: i'm so glad i there was no instagram when i was a young person i'm very i look at what their kids are looking at i'm like God, how does anyone live up to that so yeah i think she should treat it much like instagram and engage with that mirror on her terms when she's ready to and not be swayed by the nonsense within
0: oh that is wonderful advice evil queen i hope that has helped you Kelly, thank you so much for some absolutely fascinating insights to our, our listeners' problems there. My and pleasure. thank you in general so much for giving up your time to be on the Jericho Comedy Podcast.
1: It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely having a natter and um, best of luck to you lot. I'm always singing your praises to everybody. Oh, um, thank you. How you managed to come out of this lockdown with so many gigs and stuff so yeah more power to your elbows
0: oh thank you so much kelly well we really hope to see you on stage at jericho comedy sometime in the very near future because we love having you along
1: oh no Uh, me too i haven't got much in my diary so anytime i'll be yours
0: hey we will be in touch we will let our lovely listeners know when they can expect to see you because you're always such a hit uh kelly if if any of our lovely listeners wanted to find out when And where you are gigging or if you're doing any online stuff or anything like that. How can our listeners stay across all things Kelly Beaton?
1: Well, the theory is my website, so CallieBeaton.com, which in theory has all my gigs in, but I will be honest, I've not put a single gig in it uh, in six months because uh, I keep thinking <laughs> I've not got enough to put on there. And I do now actually have enough to put on there. So that's not updated, but in theory, you can certainly see bits of me on QI and on uh, The Apprentice and all that kind of sh- shizzer on there. Um, and, but I would, so, yeah, so there's all that stuff. Uh, but I am a shameless self promoter. So if you follow me on um, Twitter uh, or on uh, Instagram at CallieBeatonComedian, then I always do lots of promotion of my upcoming gigs. So you'll always know where I am because I can't shut up about it on the old soap.
0: (laughs) Super. Well, we will add those links into the episode description and Callie, thank you so much again. Speak to you soon.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: God, that was so great from Callie. She's such an incredibly insightful person She's achieved so much, she's so intelligent and she's so generous as well with her thoughts and time. I really love chatting to Callie there and I hope you enjoyed that conversation anywhere near as much as I did. Make sure you follow Callie on Twitter and check out her website for more of her really cool work. We'll add links to those into the episode description for you so make sure you give them a click and see her great work for yourself we got some really cool shows coming up over the next few weeks. We're back at the beautiful North Wall in Oxford on October 24th. Tickets are selling fast, so make sure you head to the North Wall's website to snap up tickets for what's going to be a really great night. We've got some more nights at the Cheney School in Haddington coming up, including a spooky Halloween show. We've also got some of our wonderful improv shows coming to the Oxford Playhouse soon. For all the info on all Jericho comedy shows, give us a follow at Comedy Jericho on Twitter. Obviously, Callie and I spoke about Oxford Your Mind and the importance of mental health services in the podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast or any of our other shows, you can show your support by donating a few pounds to Oxford Your Mind using our fundraising page, a link to which you can find in the episode description. We've raised over £70,000 for their vital work in the last few years, and we would be so, so grateful if you would help us raise a bit more for them and their vital work. Check out next week when I'm going to be chatting to another fantastic Jericho comedy performer. Until then, though, thank you so much for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>